Um, hello and welcome to a new episode of the DevOps Speakeasy podcast. My name is Baruch Sadogurski. I'm um, uh, head of uh, DevOps uh, advocacy for JFrog. Um, and with me, my uh, co amazing co-host, Kat Cosgrove, developer advocate with JFrog. And we have a great guest today, um, Ravi Lachman. Hey, Ravi. Hey, everybody. What's going on? Thank you for for coming to our show. Welcome yeah, to the Dallas Speakeasy. And um, we have a tradition now. We like what eleven episodes in. That's the time to coin some traditions. And um, yeah, and our tradition is um, the first oh. question. And the first question is, who is Ravi Lachman? That, that that's a very difficult question. Uh, Right, right here. Uh, <laughs> Ravi Lachman. So uh, I'm Ravi. Uh, I'm an evangelist for Harness, so we're a continuous uh, delivery as a service company. Uh, I live in the Atlanta area. I've been doing software development and software architecture for over a decade. So very excited to be talking here on DevOps Speakeasy. This is cool. So um, I guess we're going to talk about Harness like a lot. Uh, and uh, right, because I am, I mean, uh, let's, I don't know how many people know about Harness. So I think we should start with the basic question. After we ask who Ravi is, let's ask what is Harness? Uh, absolutely. So Harness uh, is a continuous delivery as a service platform. So all of the, let's say, confidence building steps that you need to deploy software, Harness is orchestrated uh, for that. Uh, so let's say we were, let's say us three were a team uh, here on DevOps Speakeasy. So we're a software We developer. are a team for sure. Yeah, we're, 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 we're a dev, a small dev team. We're part of a bigger dev team. Uh, there, there's a lot more than just building a software, right? So a lot of times you hear folks say CICD, like Kleenex or Coca-Cola, it's the eponym or eponym. I had to look up that word. I forgot what the definition was, but it's like something that means something else. Like, uh, so uh, we, we focus on the continuous delivery. So after the artifact uh, is built, uh, getting that into the systems that you need to, to deploy. So uh, there's lots of confidence building steps. As people, we all interpret requirements differently. We're emotional. And so making sure that there's a consistent way to interpret, uh, let's say, uh, the expectations, a consistent way and a safe way to deploy. Uh, we wrap it up and bundle all that up. So your approvals, your automated tests, your canary releases and deployments are all uh, by convention uh, on our platform. So uh, pretty fun stuff to work on. Um, interesting. I'm I'm thinking about. I obviously always take it to the to the place that excites me. And this is all about metadata, right? This is all about after you. How do you know? what is approved, what is not approved, what status are you in, what should, how the decisions are made. There, there is a lot going on about it. And I would say it should be very different from different for different organizations and, and different teams and different technologies. How can you unify all that? Yeah, it's really difficult. Like I must have been probably on like a dozen dev teams over the last like 15 years. And there's certain things that are like, like I can take like job to job and there's certain things that I, I can't take job to job. So let me start with what I can take job to job. So most of my background, I've been writing Java uh, for, for a while, right? That's the language I've kind of grew up on and building uh, large scale systems, uh, Java based systems. 
And so Java as, as a standard, as a language, there's common design patterns, there's, there's commonalities in the language. And clearly what you're building is unique, but there's a lot you can carry with you with skills. Uh, how we go about deploying has, is different on every single team. I, there's <laughs> been pretty much no similarity in our deployment process, you know, from when I came out of university to even today, right? Like every, the reason, the rationale behind that, it's like, it's where all the technology comes together. Uh, it's also where all the people come together, right? We all have our own interpretations. Uh, the systems are made by people, so they're fallible, right? And it, going back to your point that how do you know where certain things are? It, it's the whole rationale behind having a deployment process is confidence as people. Like again, again us three on a team, uh, each one of us will interpret what success is differently because we we're the sum total of our experiences. And so that is what we try to harmonize at, at Harness, right? It's like, hey, we all have different ideas. So we're, we're able to model that. Um, let's say every organization is different. Uh, we see a bunch of organizations, large and small, and everybody's confidence building process is different. And we help model that uh, on the platform. And also it helps visualize like what people are doing in terms of a pipeline. Uh, and so as it, your application transverses the pipeline, uh, multiple team members from different areas are able to see how stuff is uh, progressing. So a semi-related question. You said that uh, the deployment process has been different at like, every place you've worked mm -hmm. over the years. Do you think there's uh, like undue pressure being put on engineers to be experts in more and more and more technologies these days, like the resume requirements for <laughs> an engineer is getting a little bit out of control? It, it, I, th I absolutely do think so. It's something that I'm actually very passionate about, like as a detractor for this type of practice, right? Like, like if I showed you what my skill set looked like, you know, when I came out of university, you know, over a decade ago to now, it, it, there's a lot. There's a lot more uh, infrastructure focus as a software engineer, which is kind of kind of yeah. odd, right? It, it's there's there's a there's a company that plays movies out of the uh, Los Gatos area, and there's a there's a company that sells books out of the Greater Seattle area. I, I think you know who yeah. those companies are. They, they really are pioneers in what uh, what is called full lifecycle development. So if you write it, you run it, right? So that if with that merging of thought. Uh, if you take a look at the DevOps movement, that's literally it. You're like a one-person shop. To if you write the feature, you run it. If you build it, you you run it, right? And so, that, with with that, it, it requires a lot more skills. I think the skill sets that I picked up, let's say, let's let me focus on the last like three or four years, were all infrastructure-related tasks. Like, oh, you know, yeah. I have to learn Kubernetes. I need to learn Terraform. I need to learn these APIs to deploy in GCP or to deploy in AWS. And it's really, really difficult. I'm the same person. Um, I always like say I have, I've gotten uh, larger and grayer in hair, but I'm the same. I'm still the same person, right? <laughs> like but my experience as an engineer, uh, it, it's a little bit different than let's say what an infrastructure engineer would have. Um, and there's probably some other rationale why this is occurring too. Uh, there's been a lot of codification in a lot of areas that wasn't there before. And so as a, as a software engineer, uh, I'm used to iteration, right? Like I was actually chatting with some people internally today about this, like, hey, as a software engineer, if you watched what it took me to write software, you would say it's ugly and make fun of me. Like, you literally, like, Google a lot of stuff. You try two lines of code every 10 minutes and run it, like, 50 times. And then oh, you yeah. move on. <laughs> like, my first draft of something functional is hideous, and I would never want anybody to see the code of 
I, I don't want people to watch me code. Yeah, I don't know how people do pair programming. I'll, I'll be embarrassed, right? Like, oh, <laughs> I, let me Google that. Let me go in Stack Overflow. But like, um, and that that's really it, right? So I'm used to iteration uh, professionally. Like, hey, I'm used. To, it, I've never gotten anything right the first time. Like, yeah, no, I don't okay. think any. I think it's an unreasonable expectation uh, to put upon others or yourself that uh, you should always get it right the first time. Nobody is an expert in. <laughs> In that. Uh, absolutely. But there are people that don't have that luxury. Uh, it's the infrastructure folks, right? So yeah. they're, they're on the paradigm that, let, let, let's say, let's say more traditional infrastructure folks, all the codification has kind of changed a little bit of that, is th they have to get it right the first time. Like if you misconfigure a server, well, it's, you know, it's, it's physical, like, hey, it's not, you know, we're, we're wasting time by not being able to access something or it's, you know, it's turning off, <laughs> right? Why is the power not going to it, right? Yeah. yeah, they're in production all the time. There's no development environment to like rack a server. Like you don't get the practice server, you know, like training wheels. I mean, this is it. You kind of do, right? You have your environments, you have your staging, you have your whatever. You, I mean, I hope people practice before they're all shit in production. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's commonplace now, right, Barug? So like, as a, as a software engineer, I'm used to having like multiple environments, right, to kind of test changes. Uh, the, yeah. the core infra people, maybe not. They might have a sandbox to try, but they usually don't have multiple environments. But today, you know, let's fast forward to like 2020, uh, because of all the infrastructure as code, like your software development team looks like an infrastructure engineering team and vice versa. The infrastructure team looks like a software engineering team at some point. And so th this is where the two merging happen uh, in my opinion. Though. We're not expecting software engineers to be like hardcore infrastructure experts because that's that's unreasonable. There's too many security concerns to keep track of in infra. And on top of the security concerns you have to keep track of in software, it's already excessive. The <laughs> uh, sheer number of technologies and whatnot that software engineers have to know to get a junior dev job. But I think that's what what all the T-shaped people culture is about, right? So you you do have the specialization, and it's very important because our limitations as humans and what we can know. But at the end of the day, we need to work together, understand the world of of other person. But you don't yeah. really have to be very deep into everything they know. My issue with how is how wide the T is getting. Yeah, that that T is getting real wide. It's getting super top heavy. It is, <laughs> it is. But uh, but I think it's not that it wasn't wide before. It's more like we pretended it's not wide. You know what I mean? The concerns will always there. The fact that we ignored security doesn't mean that we didn't have to care about security, and now we suddenly have to. It's just a matter of we expert. ignored it before, and now we realize that that was a mistake. I think it has to do with the velocity of what we're expected to produce, right? So, like, to, like to both, like, actually, if you blend both of your points of view, it kind of co comes together with velocity. It's like Brooke, Brooke is actually correct. Like, security just didn't appear overnight, or yeah. the domains didn't appear overnight. Like, they, they require special specialists, right? Because the cast absolutely right. Like, hey, like each one of these specializations um, were there. But the, the kind of the, you know, where, where there's a lot of emphasis on the T-shape is, is another item I always like to make fun of. Like, no, when you're hiring for a junior dev job, why do you need five years experience? Or you're, you're hiring an entire <laughs> IT department. <laughs> I see like job recs before. It's like, you need like six people. Like, this is not one person. 
by any stretch yeah. of the imagination. It is that because of the velocity that's kind of required today, um, that the whole shifting left mentality, right, or widening or beginning of the T is as, as I'll, I'll play devil's advocate. I'll, I'll pretend that you and Baruch are specialists in your own domain. So Kat, you're AppSec engineer, and Baruch, you're a special infrastructure engineer, right? So congrats, or I'm sorry <laughs> at this time, but like a lot of it, a lot of it sharing domain knowledge with me in some sort of format, like, hey, like let's, let's, we'll harp on security, like, hey, as an engineer, I need to make more secure choices um, during my, my SCLC process, but I'm not an expert by any means. But you know, cat cat is an expert, but she's only one cat, and there's like 20 of me on a team, right? So it's we're already <laughs> looking at a disadvantage uh, for, yeah. for cat, and so like there there's this is where platform engineering perspective comes in. Like, hey, you have experts that are able to teach, but there's also platforms in place for me. Like, I think the challenge for plot, like platform engineering <laughs> as a domain, maybe not so much as a job, is that platform engineers are there to teach and build. Um, I'm trying not to use the word platform too much, like the SATs, but I'll have to use it like platforms for other people to consume. So I'll, I'll pick on Kat a little bit. Like, That's so okay. Kat's our, our AppSec engineer on the team here. And you know, Kat, Kat's domain is, like, it's very application security specific. And But like, like most um, domains that require a lot of expertise, uh, there's only one Kat and there's like 20 Robbie. So we're going to multiply if it keeps going on from two to four to <laughs> it's uh, 16, right? Um, but that's usually how it is. Cat, Cat's pretty leveraged um, or matrixed, right? Like depending how you look at it, that her expertise is not one-to-one -one, uh, for the team. She probably supports more than one team. So that, that's why uh, the, that's why a lot of tooling and platforms, like if you look at what people are investing in today, it is going towards of helping people become T-shaped without like going nuts, right? Like I'm not an ac application security expert, uh, but let's say, you know, this a quick plug for JFrog. Like, if I was using something like JFrog X-Ray, it, it I'll get information earlier on the development cycle on more hygienic choices uh, that I have to make, right? So, Cat's knowledge on she knows what's hygienic and not. She can clearly say, like, hey, you know, if you're using this, this kind of meets our enterprise standard. So, Robin, you have to pick something from here, and that that's basically it, right? Like, hey, it's you know, shifting left, broadening the T-shaped skills. But you're also limited in choice. Um, where it gets detrimental is that you don't have a very strong platform engineering um, base. Uh, if you take a look at the uh, the book company and the video company, you know they they invest heavily in platform engineering. Like they they yeah. have very strong platform engineering teams. You know they're some of the more senior engineers who get to do that. Versus like let's say an average an average enterprise that. You know, probably has multiple focuses or like let's say an insurance company or a financial services firm they they might not have a very strong platform engineering team because they have so much legacy that they have to keep up with and that's where the challenge is right like oh they do it so you should too but like but they have like 100 people supporting you to do something right versus it's just you so that's so so what you are saying is okay we understand that the world is more complicated now and we can and and uh, the you know there are no parity between people who uh, maintain every aspect of the of the broad part in T. So instead, where you are lacking people and expertise, you kind of um, cover uh, with technologies and maybe less um, less choice. Yeah, if you if you limit choice, it's like going to a buffet. Versus like ordering from a menu, you know, like if you're presented with like infinite choice, it's like analysis process. You just don't know, you're like, oh, it's, 
the, the steak is too far. I'll take the lobster versus if it's on the menu, they'll bring it to me. Yeah, you know what? I'll take I'll take a hamburger <laughs> or something. You don't have to go. Walk. You've never seen me eat at a buffet, my dude. <laughs> Multiple plates. <laughs> but that that's what I'm rook. Yeah, when you limit choice, you know, you can a lot of times when you when you deal with a lot of choice, it's a lot of bickering that goes on. It's like consensus versus opinion development, right? Like it's it gets it gets difficult to kind of navigate that. That's so it's it's not about the software engineers becoming appsec specialists as well. It's about reducing the workload for the one appsec specialist you have. Yeah, not becoming the bottleneck, right? It's like if we if I will say you know a very a very quintessential you know like like example would be you know let's something that shifted left is appsec, right? Like that yeah. you know you're, you're a lot of the tooling that you know that that JFrog has you know is kind of shifting towards giving information earlier in the dev cycle, right? So um, it, it's it's all going back to velocity, right? If, if I am if I have to get something out in production and that's where I'm bonused or like MBO'd on, um, you know, if I, poor, poor cat only has eight hours in a day, she knows she's not working 20 hour days, right? So part of, let's say more traditional approach would be, okay, at the end of your sprint, at the end of, you know, it might be a two week, four week, six week sprint, you need to have someone from AppSec sign off on the change. But, you know, if you support 10 teams, you're constantly doing that and battling their deployment schedules versus, if, you know, if you pick from this set of tools, we, we automatically bless you, right? Or if you pick from the set of libraries, you know, you pass your, our automated suite of tests, you're, you're automatically blessed. So like your, your domain knowledge is you're able to get to the teams at their velocity. You, know, you become the ball. Like that's- yeah, yeah, I yeah, but I think there is a problem here is that when you're limiting the choice for, for, for your teams, um, doesn't it uh, prevent the innovation? Because the idea mm -hmm. is that you want to run as fast as possible and come with new ideas. So for that, you need you you want you want to let people to be creative and do all cry all kind of crazy stuff. And then it's up to you as an infrastructure engineer to find a way to um, uh, to provide quality, to provide uh, security, to be able to deliver it to, on scale and redundancy, and be able to maintain it. Good luck. I mean. Ooh, that's too much. Yeah, <laughs> I don't agree. I, I, I don't. I'm sorry. I don't. I don't think that you need to give people like 100% free reign to use and do whatever they want with no consequences and no rules in order to get innovation. Uh, I think it's a bad idea to let people choose whatever they want with impunity and do whatever they want with impunity well, humans yeah but think about you wouldn't you wouldn't allow anybody in your team to use kubernetes a couple of years ago i mean kubernetes probably want or or docker more than a couple of years ago like 10 years ago probably it won't pick up if no one would allow to use it well yeah. i mean it's just the protocol for deciding i mean i don't think you say you have to use these same three tools until the fucking end of time you know, but you know, there there have to be rules in place. Yeah, there's two two sets of radio dials, and that's always like the hardest to get right. Like, I'll give you like my technology manager, like you know my team credo. But oh, Mister Manager, I know. Yeah, I, I'm a people manager now. It's scary. I, have <gasps> <people>. <laughs> I know. Uh, 
but it's like it's usually like two sets of radio dials, right? Like the, the one Baruch is mentioning is like, hey, you're, you have to maintain the radio dial of innovation. You know, you, it, it's it's what separates everybody, right, in the industry. <laughs> it's not fast yeah. right? versus uh, the older I get, it's like at some point, okay, okay, like we need business controls at some point, right? Like we we can't have total free reign on doing something because. You know, we might be too bleeding edge and we might be being detrimental to ourselves being too bleeding edge for either from a security yeah, standpoint. Wanna, you don't want to dreamcast yourself. Yeah, you know? from a security standpoint, from an architecture standpoint to an operational standpoint. Like if we're the first team to do something, that means we get to support it because we're like way ahead of the, the, the infrastructure team, right? So yeah. going back to like, the, the, I was fortunate, um, a team I worked on, we were the first team going into Kubernetes uh, a few years ago, one of my employers, right? So like, we definitely, definitely seen that occur, um, <laughs> occur before. Uh, but it, it's basically that, right? Like it's, it's, it, it's kind of a hybrid ball. Like giving people choice up to a point, saying you know if if you have to do this, understand you have to support it. Like saying just when you take a look at something, if it's not like on an official list or like a technology roadmap, um, understand that we are going to have to come up with a playbook how to support it. So there's going to be more of an infrastructure emphasis on our technology decision than if there was something we already had, but which can be really fun, right? We can be the first team to implement, I don't know, go new technology and say, Robby.io became a popular package, <laughs> Ravar, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so we have to support support two Ravar packages, right? So, and, and that's, pre that's pretty much it. It's knowing that, hey, if, we, if we're you know, doing something for the first time, we're going to have to be the ones operationally supporting that for a little bit until the rest it gets into the enterprise world and also you don't want to stifle innovation like if, if you're going through usually if you take a look at platform engineering approaches like most people say you know what yes the development team will have the most lax rules like in dev environments so from a security standpoint they could use more risky stuff or less risky stuff um, they could pick infrastructure that maybe is not totally blessed but there needs to be a good reason why you're picking it right so like i sure. say enterprise architecture standard now like does it meet? Does it match the goals that we're going for? And are you okay about teaching people uh, down the chain? You know, shifting right is another thing, right? You go. Are you okay teaching the people on the right what uh, the choices you're making? So, there always there always is a happy medium uh, for that, but it's difficult to get right. I think that's a good that's a good compromise. One of the one of the nicer ways to implement this, if you wanna want to innovate, go ahead, but we won't be able to give you the support that we give to the tools that we know um, is actually doing it with, with money, with budgets. And uh, we know those, um, those organizations that have the infrastructure team. And if you go by their recommendation, they will provide you tons of stuff that they already paid for and they have in their arsenal to, uh, to give you, right? So for example, but they also won't limit you to use anything else. So basically, um, uh, you say, you know what? I want to write my next microservice in Go. They will come and say, well, fine, we support Go. Here are the IDs that we already paid. Here are the hours of consultants that can help you that we have in the pool and are already negotiated. And if you come to them and say, you know what, I want to write microservices in, I don't know, in, in Rust, they will tell you, well, nice, good luck. Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of resources to support you, but definitely come back with your findings because maybe we should actually start supporting that. that that's very fair. I think it's, it's knowing when to pick your battles too, right? So like a, a lot of times it's, it's, 
there's there's non-functional requirements that people will bicker about. It's not the features. Like uh, uh, let's let's take let's take Rust as an example. We'll just mm -hmm. play with Rust now. So let's say we're going from Go to Rust for Baruch's example, and Kat and I are on the Rust development team. Like, yeah, Rust is fast. Mozilla did it, so we can do it too. Um, where where the pushback that you and I would get, like we might build something in Rust, but it'll be all the non-functional stuff that the some sort of infra team or platform engineering team would provide. It's like okay. Yeah, you know, we're we're here at Acme Enterprise. Do you know that we have SLAs we have to maintain? So how are we gonna monitor it? Right? Like that's always a problem. Like, oh, we don't yeah, our, our our you know data dog or our app dynamics, like we don't have a Rust interceptor for it. You know, it, you you might be able to log stuff to Splunk, but we need to be able to profile your app. And so th there's where the, a lot of the pushback will come. It's not necessarily how we built the feature, but like there's some sort of standard that an enterprise app has in an organization, like it has to be managed, it has to be monitored, there has to be some sort of recovery process. Like, can you prove those things out? Um, and, and it's like picking your battle. Like, let's say Rust became more, you know, it's becoming, it's always everybody's favorite favorite development language on the Stack Overflow surveys. And like, um, it, it, let's say like, you know what, we can prove that, hey, the tools that we have to do these things do have hooks for it. it it's a lot less of an argument of task at that uh, versus, um, you're doing it for the first time. And so that's where like, hey, incremental success kind of wins out with the, also they might give you a you know, risk exception. A lot of times if, you know, let's say again, we'll say we're going totally rogue and our, our team decided to do something that we, 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 we feel very strong against it. We assume the risk. So a lot of the, oper like what Baruch was saying, like a lot of the operational support we would probably get might not be be there for us at the beginning. It's probably, that's probably a hill I would be willing to die on over a language choice. <laughs> honestly <laughs> but that's so, uh, so here is okay that's fair enough but 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 what if um as ravi said there are tons of requirements observability and security and uh, logging and and api endpoints and what's not that you already have as an infrastructure that you can just get for free only if you will give up your your language of choice and just switch to a good one, decent one, maybe just not the one that you are super excited this week. If it's still a good, good language that I like, I mean, if we're talking about, no, you can't write Rust, but you can write Python, I would be like, fine. Yeah. Or yeah. go, fine. But if it was, you have to write Java, I would be like, I am quitting. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm sorry. Yeah. Kind of like common for enterprises now, they have a, a polyglot support, right? Like it's like, they usually, usually it doesn't come down to the, like if you take a look at like what people are like, the real bickering comes down to, it might not, so let, let's take Rust again. Like, okay, we're going for Rust. Most most likely most of our application is not going to be written in Rust. We're going to be yeah. calling third, like it's going to be an aggregation of multiple things. Like let's say we're building an engine so like the core processing part of our engine might be rust but you know we're, we have a web interface like you know we're using node.js yeah. and angular like we're using multiple languages in our own application so like bits and pieces of it might be unique and then bits and pieces of like a, a bulk share of it might be we're using open source we're using third-party open source we're using other packages that we didn't write we're calling other pieces of like let's say we have a log on a login in part of our application that the some sort of central team wrote all the adapters for that in our enterprise, right? So like, it, it's it's not an all or nothing argument, but it is like, 
you know, a kind of a coy game of like, we will take 20% of Rust. And we own, we will probably, but a realistic example is, yes, okay, cat. Like we're going to use Rust. Rust is the best choice because it's very performant for the decision engine that we're writing. But everything else is going to be like supported. So, but it, it does produce interesting operational problems. Like where did the problem occur? <laughs> but we can figure that out. And, and that's why microservices are cool because yeah. they make it easier to do that. Exactly. And, 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 and uh, be flexible and let people do what they think is the right answer for this particular question. But it brings us back, all the way back to the beginning of our conversation. And my question is how versatile, how um, universal tool like Harnessed have to be in order to support um, this less rigid selection of tools, techniques, instruments than than uh, that that we that people are expect now to in the in the modern world yeah i i think what if you take a look at like very modern ways of solving problems a lot of it is problem-centric solutions right like we have goals like okay we want to deploy quicker or we want to deploy safer and so a lot of the implementation details are you know, there's ways to abstract that out. If you if you take a close look at the Harness platform, uh, I always like to tell people we're like the blackjack dealer. Uh, you know, <laughs> so I'm the dealer and Baruch and Kat are, you know, hanging out at my table here in, here in a casino. And I'm like, well, Baruch, like, you need to double down on that 11, you know, like, stop. <laughs> or like, <laughs> something. Like, it's giving you hints, right? And that's a lot of what the Harness platform does. So like, we're, we're like the blackjack dealer at that point. Um, for all of the intricate technology choices, it, it, it's, it's it's two models. We're a black tech dealer, and we're like Bob Ross, the, the person who paints like trees in a half an hour on you know public public access TV. And so you basically load up your palette or your painting weasel with different colors, which is different cloud adapters, different deployment areas, and then uh, what the harness will help you do is assemble that in a very beautiful a beautiful painting. But also, uh, what harness will help you do is like the dealer, like hey, if you if you do a canary deployment, how are you promoting the canary? Like you shouldn't double down on that. You're drunk. Get out of here. Or how are you validating <laughs> something? And so it's actually pretty simple to use. Like to Brooke's point, yes. Like there's there's loads of technology that we have to support. Um, we kind of do it with like data support and, and like also convention. Like hey, if you do X, you have to do Y. Or if you did B, A had to occur before B. Um, and we really enforce that. We make it quite simple for people uh, to consume. So we support the new and the old uh, pretty, pretty seamlessly, which is the exciting part for me. It's like, hey, you can really pull off these advanced deployment techniques with you know literally a few clicks of the mouse and by convention. So it sounds like harness it easier for software engineers to not need to have like a super wide T. Because if you've got tool tips, for lack of a better word, built mm -hmm. in, preventing you from doing some dumb shit, all you really need to know is how to plug it in. And from there on, Harness is going to hold your hand at least a little bit. So you don't oh, need yeah. to... We, a lot of interesting about, like, if you take a look like at a customer journey that we go through, or let's say like, hey, I, you know, we, we're a customer's taking a very close look from a proof of value, proof of concept standpoint. Um, it's funny that they bring a lot of teams that usually don't talk together. Mm -hmm. You know, so like the, the infrastructure engineering team, because it's easy for people to input expertise into Harness. So like, again, I always like to pick on Kat. Kat, you are the Terraform expert on the team here. Congratulations. Um, All right, cool. thank you. Oh, she, yeah. <laughs> she, she is a Terraform expert on this particular team. That's very precise. 
Yeah, yeah, it's a cat, cat, you know, she, she's a expert in Terraform, so perfect. And so you're able to like kind of say, you know, I don't want to deal with Ravi like more than like once every two months that he has all these funny questions. So I'll give Ravi a Terraform script and I'll make it in a way that, you know, he can just lo load it into harness and it just prompts him for a couple key tunables that you know, we usually would ask. And Ravi has never seen Terraform in his life. And so we, he wouldn't even care if it's Terraform or Ansible or Puppet or Chef, right? Like it doesn't matter at that point. It's just, we're able to give, you know, part of his job is to lay the infrastructure down at deployment time. And that's a lot of what we support, right? Saying, okay, yeah, like Kat certainly has expertise. Just she will be the one uh, kind of templating out this portion of it, but it plugs easily into the platform and we can temple out the whole workflow pretty simply. And that's, when people see how simple it is, it's usually like, oh, <laughs> yeah, we know what we're talking about. <laughs> I like that, what, 30, 40 minutes into this podcast, and I'm already uh, an AppSec engineer, uh, a Terraform expert, and I suddenly know Rust. I am I feel so smart. You have T-shaped skills. I mean, this is legitimately <laughs> what the market requires now. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> and see how difficult? All those skills are so different. Like, that's my big gripe with it. Like, <laughs> it, it. They are so, so it's like, I could write Hello World in Rust, or I could write Hello World in some sort of Terraform that spins up some sort of EC2 instance, but... Yeah, like they, they are they are definitely different domains. Co code is not co like they all do something different, right? Like yeah, that's a representative as code. It's like oh, the software engineer has to know they know code, right? Like oh my god, <laughs> <laughs> I don't actually know Rust, uh, listeners. I would like to learn it, uh, mostly because cargo yank is about as close as you can get to saying yeet in a uh, programming context. But I, I don't actually know Rust, so please do not come to me with Rust questions. I am not a Rust expert. <laughs> Why is it not and, and generally speaking, Cargo is one of the least fucked up dependency managers. So <laughs> is it? Yes. Good for Rust. Yes. Rust uh, Cargo is pretty decent. I mean, it has that'll be real fucking refreshing after Go. Sorry, Google. Not, not only after Go, after almost all of them. I mean, uh, if you if you ask me to name two, I cannot say perfect, but decent dependency managers, that would be Conan and, and, and Cargo. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Noted. Yeah. So Robbie, do you actually know Rust? I know how to spell it. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, it's always like, I don't have anything that would be a good fit for Rust, right? Like it's always Stack Overflows number one love language i get like from a software engineer perspective like i get why it's so popular but it's just like hard to find people with rust skills right like it's all like you know we, if you if you've been using it usually it's 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 like a if, if go and c plus plus had a baby you get rust right like yeah i mean it's, it's used for um embedded development yeah like and, your uh, Mozilla is powered by rust. yeah this is huge i mean embedded development is huge we spoke about how edge computing is is the new big thing is the new cloud native so i mean saying well only edge computing uses it is just is just saying like well yeah only 5 billion people are using it i mean no seriously that's that's the next big thing and if 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 rust is a good uh, fit for edge computing rust is the next big thing yeah, I mean, not to give away my like entire conference talk, but there are 20.4 billion edge devices in the world. It's a lot. Ooh. Oh, yeah, swap, swap up is coming up. I'm excited. That's a great segue. Cat, yeah. well played. All right, <laughs> let's you. talk about swap up. That's why you pay me the big bucks. Ooh. Nice, nice. Ravi, swap up.
Um, yeah. Jorga, you are one of our um, great speakers, and uh, let's talk a little bit about your talk. What you're going to talk about? It's oh, about absolutely. At first, I wish we were doing it in person. You know, the whole situation is, oh my is crazy. God. I'm you looking know. forward to hanging out with you guys. And, uh, I'm going to take the- you out for drinks and. As many times I've been to the Bay Area, I probably went to San Jose one time. It's always like this, like five block area of San Francisco that I cordoned off. <laughs> and so, <laughs> like, oh, yeah. I can see. I would legitimately be like the second time I've ever been to San Jose. I was like, woo, <laughs> I can see San Jose. Um, <laughs> me it's not that san jose is a is a, a very attractive tourist um a tourist location but the hotel that we were supposed to be in is, oh, is the hotel was popping dude they're, they're always like stellar hotels like, I love uh, yeah, yeah and that was it was like uh, like an old uh luxuries hotel from they, they, they don't do, build like those anymore so this is one of those. But uh, you know what? Next year. Next year, we're going to do it in person. It will be amazing. But online, it's going to be very, very nice as well. So what are you going to talk about? I'll be talking about how to get a yes. Uh, so a lot, of, a lot of what we do in software development, what you don't teach you in school and the older I get, is there's a lot of negotiation that goes on. Uh, that's yes. it. You're always negotiating something. Either you're handed, like going back to like, I have to appease Kat, the app tech engineer, with her automated ways or manual ways, but that's just one facet of it. You're, you're constantly negotiating. And so one of my favorite books I got when I came out of school and, you know, started working at a consulting firm was like, how to, how to get a yes without like offending people. And it really talks about certain ways that, you know, everything is the art of negotiation. There's lots of ways of getting a yes um, by, um, by early negotiation, surfacing up data early, and so we're talking about that, that is core to continuous delivery. So um, I, uh, we partake in this Linux Foundation organization called the Continuous Delivery Foundation or the CDF. I think Baruch and I are both on the Speakers Bureau <laughs> for that. So, yeah, and the big, the, big, the big goal for that uh, is, is basically what we're talking about. Like, how do we negotiate yeses across vendor, right? Like what's, what's the best way to get a yes or a no quickly? And, you know, the, the sales argument is you don't start selling till you get a no, right? Okay. No to Rust, but why? <laughs> Let me start selling you to this at this point, right? And so the talk will be kind of going through that. What, what are some ways that people negotiate yeses in, inherently? And then what are some of the tooling uh, that the CDF and ourselves represent? Uh, I'm, I'm smiling because great minds think alike. And uh, I actually have, uh, together with my co-speaker, Leonid Golnik, we have a talk which is very, very similar to that. And that influencing DevOps without authority, how you can actually promote DevOps in your organization without being the big boss that can say, okay, we're changing our ways now, but actually going through it from the bottom. And it's a lot about influencing, and a lot about conversations for getting to yes. And, and obviously there are a lot of techniques there come from the come from the same book or couple of books getting to mm-hmm. yes getting past no getting to yes in harsh environments and all that so yeah i'm i'm very excited to see how our talks realign mine won't be on swamp up because i won one good talk about persuasion and getting to yes is enough so we'll get yours but i'm personally hey. very excited to see what you have to say about that Brooke, you're not actually speaking are you uh, no i'm not because Every time I try to organize Swamp Up and speak at Swamp Up at the same time, 
I realized a, that it was a mistake and I need to give up one of those. I'm not sure I'm ready to give up organizing Swamp Up, so I try to give up the speaking. Well, I'm prettier anyway, so. That's for sure. And you're a yeah. better speaker and for sure you two are the uh, definitely more deserve to be on the agenda than me. Um, Ravi, uh, I wanted to ask you, did you adapt the the basic concepts of, of getting to yes, getting through no to continuous delivery to DevOps? And if in, in yes, in, in what way? Maybe you can give us one um, spoiler example of uh, how the sheer uh, theory of getting to yes is actually translated to continuous delivery for our, in our in our example. Yeah, absolutely. Like a lot of it can be uh, a lot of the parallels I, I parallel uh, is I'll give you an this is going to be like a two minute example. So I always like to compare what it was like getting a credit card in the '90s versus like getting a credit card today in 2020, right? So like if I'm a little bit older. So I remember when I was like 18 in the 90s and trying to get like an American Express card, you literally have to call them, to tell them all your information. And then, you know, someone was like, okay, that's cool. And you have to wait like two weeks for a yes or no, then another two weeks to get the credit card in the mail. Versus today, I can literally go on my phone here and, you know, go to Amex.com or the app and get a platinum card, like Apple card ID in like 60 seconds, like flat. Yeah. Like, like it, it's ridiculous, right? Uh, but the number of decisions that America Express makes today, like outweighs their decisions that they made in the nineties. Right. And a lot of reasons that they have to do that was core to automation. And so they're able to like, to, to say, this is an acceptable amount of risk. And th they have decided that. And they're also able to do that with the data, like surfacing data and surfacing, you know, hey, decision criteria. So the, the DevOps trivecta of people process technology, technology is easy, you know, like, Hey, I built a system that has five nodes because it can take two concurrent failures. Given uh, process, sure, we have a change control board, but people, that's it. We're, we're in the hard part, right? So a lot of like what the CDF and Harness tries to do is allowing you to automate the yes. So a big part of the talk is automation of the yes um, and giving you a quick no. And so saying, okay, there's a certain risk tolerance. If you don't pass a certain test, clearly you're going to get told no. Right. So if you're able to know that kind of contract negotiation up front, you can either provide a lot of backing data why it didn't fail and kind of go forward or just assume that you're given a lot of responsibility to get a yes, uh, but you know what you're working with. So a lot of times also, this might be giving too much of the talk away, but you know, in the art of sales, right? So a little bit, I spent some time uh, before I came back into more technical in, in sales. And a lot of it would be like, we have to understand all the decision makers, right? So let's say I was trying to sell you and Kat a new car. Congrats, you're going to buy a Porsche. It's Robbie Porsche about Lena. I'm selling one. Um, so, well, I'm not selling. No, no, but, it's just like, but as an example, like, you know, you, get, you have to know your customer, right? Like, hey, like, I, I need to know what Baruch likes. I need to know what Cat likes. You know, Cat wants a convertible. Baruch wants SUV. You know, they have, you know, this is why they, they want it. The same thing can translate into system development, right? Are we internal customer first? Are we external customer first? Knowing your customer is also very important. And so that's, without giving away the entire talk, <laughs> those are the main the main talking points I'll be talking, so, talking yeah. about. Yeah. So first of all, I do want an SUV, uh, but um, I have to admit you, you you cheated. Instead of talking how hard it is to convince people and to change their mind and to go uh, through no uh, in human interaction, you're just automated all the decision-making and you don't ask anyone for a yes or a no anymore. Well, That's it's better to... 
ask for forgiveness than permission, right? <laughs> yeah. <do> <laughs> A lot of times it's 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 automating the yes, right, which is the challenging part. You know, there's clearly things that fall outside the normal normal bounds, but it, it's it's coming. It, the part of it's like coming together. So like when you're building anything that's like rule based development, like going back to the credit card example, like one person in American Express didn't decide what made me get a platinum card versus what failed me. Like even though it's easy to change those systems, um, it, it's the business logic behind it was developed by like hundreds of people with risk modeling and whatnot. And so like a lot of, a lot of that getting to the yes, is just bringing people together to understand the rule set ahead of time uh, and then implementing that in an automated fashion. Like the implementation is like, it, it's nothing, right? It's so simple, but exactly what steps you implement that that's the bickering that happens. So that's, that's pretty much like two thirds of the talk. <laughs> please, please see the real talk, <laughs> the whole talk. Please, please see the real talk. It's long. I mean, I mean, you, your talk is like half an hour long, so yeah. you didn't you didn't spoil much. Yeah, Come to yeah. Swamp but but Here's yeah, it's interesting how a talk with almost the same title, um, your your and and ours actually speak about completely different things. That's that's fun. But we we took the harder route. We are talking about people, not machines. Ooh, machines I, are machines are easy, predictable. Uh, right and and deterministic and uh, short feedback, people not so much. No, we're dumb, panicky animals. Oh, uh, yeah, we're very emotional. <laughs> we have emotion. We are. We dig our heels in on dumb shit too. So, and we are irrational, and our feedback loop is screwed up. You know, one one of the things that annoys me the most is when you ask people and for something that. You expect a honest answer, you never get it. It's like really annoying. Never happened with machines. No, I've hated an entire product before just because I didn't like their logo. Yeah. Just flat out. I think this logo is like weird looking or creepy or <coughs> what the funny thing I, is I they would ask like this you product. they would ask you why you hate it, and you would be so embarrassed to admit that it's because of logo that you will come to dump excuses and call uh, things that which are completely fine as bad just not told me that you hated the logo <laughs> yeah probably no you know I, I do i can't be sure of this but i think part of my like love hate relationship with go is that there are a lot of things i love about the language but that fucking gopher freaks me out yeah it looks like a like a hybrid bear gopher it does, and it looks like, like one of those toys that you like squeeze and their eyes pop out, but it's like permanently squeezed, and it. Creepy. I don't like it. It is creepy. I don't. It is creepy. It's creepy. Well, it's really hard for us to give negative. Like it, it depends who you ask. Like we're from three different parts of the world, right? So like giving negative feedback might be more difficult for some of us than others. A good example of that. This might be a little off topic. One of my one of my good friends. One of my favorite shows until I learned it was fake was uh, House Hunters. So, is it fake? Yeah, I didn't mean to burst your bubble. So, like, <laughs> so my, my friend, he was on House Hunters in Atlanta. And, and the irony of it, like, was, you know, but they, they have to be under contract to go on the show. So, like, they already bought the house before they have to find two other houses to, like, oh, man. talk smack about. Like, oh, we don't like the color of the shelves in this room. And it's, it's like, we already bought the other house. Thanks for always so <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah that's exactly right right yeah that's what going back to like hey get, giving hard feedback is sometimes easier and harder it, it shows a whole hard the how hard it is to find fault in things like 
my, my friend who was on the show. It was so funny because when they were showing the house that they bought, half of his stuff was already in the house. It's like, yeah, this is the right house. Like, we, we, he had a viewing party. We're like sitting on the couch that they were never showing, like before they bought, <laughs> before they bought the place. Like, yeah, dude. Um, but that's usually it. It's like he's like the hardest thing was for us to come up with reasons why we didn't like the other two houses. Like, it's like we they were both nice, but we already bought our house. <laughs> you know, so. That's gonna like ruin. Sorry, HGTV. Didn't mean to spoil it. <laughs> oh, no. I don't have cable, so I don't really get to watch it that often anyway. I got to be in a hotel, and ain't nobody going anywhere. So yeah, that's how I watch TV. Also, it's like, oh yeah, I can watch cable at a hotel. You know, dentist. you know where I watch all those all those uh, shows on a plane. Actually, the, the direct TV. That's the only. That's the only time. No, oh, yeah. the plane is for shitty movies I didn't see, uh, like movies that I want to see but not enough to pay like sixteen dollars to see it in theater. You know, like the uh, the Harry Potter Fantastic Beasts one. I'm not. I wasn't going to pay sixteen dollars to see that in the theater, but I will watch it on an airplane. Yeah, I always like to start at the end of the movies on an airplane and work my way backwards. I'm like, let me see what this movie was about in the last really? like two minutes. <laughs> yeah, and then I'm like, okay, I'll start. That's a- <laughs> you have the complete control. <laughs> I'll just get to the end to see what they're going to do. I, I, you know what? I'll try that. I'll try that for you. Then if I'm ever allowed on an airplane again, God, yeah. I miss airplanes. Yeah, I like to cheat in the movie. Like. Yeah. <laughs> that's why I like computers. See, Baruch automating the yes is cheating. <laughs> so just give me the answer and then let's see what to work our way backwards. Can... That's a good thing about computers, though, and about automated deployment rules and or delivery. Sorry, you guys say continuous delivery. Uh, that that is the good thing about it because you you do already know the conditions. You are already aware. You you can like work backwards if you want to. Yeah, you you know you know what good looks like, right? Yeah, yeah. That, that's the, the great part about it because I think the if I go back to like when I first started my software engineering career, I I had zero I mean zero visibility what a deployment looked like. Like I had I had no idea what the steps were. Um, I, I had no confidence in what you know. I was discovering things as as they came about like okay we have to package it this way okay can you write this documentation to hand off to xyz okay can you put these in a properties file okay can you change the properties okay and it was very ad hoc i mean it, the ad hocness has definitely been you know less and less but there's still a little bit of that now i know that it might be just more have more like of a lead position like i definitely know what what the steps are right like hey i absolutely know it's, it's all about giving that upfront data because there's a pipeline I look at the pipeline first. Like this is what I, this is what the other team has to go through. I, I assume we're like at least eighty percent going to do that. Um, so yeah, yeah, having that, having that. A lot of software development already looks like fuck it. We'll just run it and see what happens. And I get an error, and then I fix that error, and fuck it. We'll just run it, and I get another error. Just like work backwards through this like massive stack trace of problems thankfully python's like pretty explicit with its error messages so usually i've got a good idea of what the fix is but i already did that through like my entire software development process i don't want to have to do that with my deployment yeah deployments are are something else you know i must have been to production hundreds of times in my career and it it always get a queasy feeling like another another a good one to talk about it's like i always like to ask people when is your deployment over and it's it's a very it depends who you ask. Like 
it's a very intrinsic and telling question of their organization, right? So I'll pose the question to, to you two. And there's no right or wrong answer. Like, when, when is the deployment over? Like, I'll give you some insight of all the answers. I'll give you a second to. What was the deployment? What? When is your deployment over? Like, when oh, is the deployment? When is my deployment over? When is it typically? Well, I, I will give you the naive answer so you can tear it to shreds, obviously. And my answer would be um, you, you have a commit. It went through the entire pipeline. It was verified for quality, security, passed all the security gates, passed all the quality gates, and then was um, progressively deployed. We deployed it as a canary. We saw that everything's good. No casualties in production. Everybody are happy. And then we roll out the canary to our entire target, whatever it is, uh, target devices, edges, or, or whatever it is, and then we are done and waiting for the next commit. And Kat, when is your deployment over? Uh, mine is over when the first user uses the update that I've pushed out and it doesn't break. Well, no, but this so, is the first stage in your progressive delivery. That's After that, you actually need to keep deploying. Yeah, so, you so, deploying, but... Yeah, both of your answers are very correct. Right, like okay. it, like I, I think Bruce answer is, is a very literal, like very sophisticated answer. Like you know, you, you'd automatically be in the top ten percent of people I talk to on a day to day basis. Like when, when talking about it, and can't, can't answer is very literal, literal, right? Like hey, when the first user logged in, and, and a majority, I would say most of the answers I get are so it falls between the spectrum of what you and Bruce actually said, right? Like a lot of most people would kind of side with the deployments over when the artifact has been delivered, right? Like that might be the most literal answer you can get. Yeah. But if you, when you start talking to folks like who, who really like gone through the process a lot, you start to say like, you know what? It's never over, right? And like it, it's it's over when our next deployment goes in <laughs> because we're always there's always something going on. Like I would always get like I used to, so part of like I spent some time in like financial services and I was I was an app owner for a non sexy application, but it was. It was like a very internal, like, but it was an important internal. It was managing people with pay time off. So I ran the, the PTO program for, for the bank. I was the app owner for that. So um, we would deploy, you know, we would deploy or we would build every day, but we would only release like once a month unless there was an emergency. And, you know, when we we're going into like a higher environment or even into production, you know, we would, without fail, uh, we would deploy and then we would like a couple hours later, I would violate an SLA, <laughs> something we could, I don't know, like every time there's something else. And so like, it was just, like this uneasy feeling and it never gets any better. Like, oh, oh what's going to happen now? How am I going to get a pager duty alert, you know, blowing up that something's going wrong? And, like, and it, it's always uneasy. Well, <laughs> and I, so, I think uh, it it makes sense to distinguish or maybe it doesn't make sense to distinguish between what actually happened because it might be something that is related to your deployment i don't know like some script um, failed that updates the servers or in your canary you um, um, you fail to uh, see uh, some problems and you keep rolling mm -hmm. instead you keep rolling out instead of rolling back or it might be well that it was a bug and and then it requires another commit and another deployment to fix it so we can distinguish we can say okay this is the infrastructure thing that that went bump and no this is a bug that needs to be fixed and and then I, one can argue that in first case 
it is a deployment problem and the deployment is not over, but in the mm -hmm. later case, it's actually not a deployment problem. We deployed whatever we need to deploy. It is just not the right thing to, to work correctly. But should we distinguish that? Or is just in the matter of the day, the quality is the quality of the user experience and it doesn't matter if it doesn't work because we didn't roll it right or it doesn't work because there is a bug there. Yeah, I think at the, the kind of the heart of the, the question I was asking is like, when when do you personally feel your responsibility is over for the deployment, right? So it's always like a very uneasy feeling. Because like, Brooke, you gave some like good remediation information. Like, let's say something didn't go right. You know, it's it's problem determination time, right? You're in some sort of window. Do you roll forward? Do you roll back? How sticky is mm -hmm. the deployment? Can we roll back successfully? You know, if you're fighting the MTTR metric, you have to restore at some point, right? And so... Uh, that's usually it. It's just like, hey, do you feel personally on the hook for something? I, I remember it used to be a detriment to my happy hour. And we would have to, like, you know, for me, I don't want to pay full prices for drinks. So happy hour is like four to seven. <laughs> and I was like, let's get this deployment over by five so we can go and, you know, save, get half off, right? Yeah. Uh, and it's always like, ah, oh, you know, let me, I know I'm going to get the alert. Let me not have too many. Or, you know what, this time it's my turn. <laughs> let me drink a little bit uh, but yeah, that's usually, it's, it's, it's a very human centric uh, problem also. It's like, ah, oh, go back, go forward. Uh, the irony of it, like when you look at like, it also it's the, it's the machine versus the human argument, right? I'll, going back to automating the yes. I actually might bring this point up, um, in the talk, I might change my talk. I have a week <laughs> before that, so, uh, for one of the, the other points is it, doing systemic work is actually very human centric. So. Uh, it, the other question I always like to ask people is like, when do you roll back, right? So this, this kind of like giving you kind of the answer here. It's like, oh, everybody will say, oh, if there's a problem, right? So like Brooke was saying like, hey, if we're violating something or Kat's saying the user log didn't have a bad experience. Um, but rollbacks can be very subjective, right? Like I, I was not willing to roll back because my bonus depended on it. Like we had, like I'm MBO'd on delivering a feature. Rolling back is not delivering the feature. And so like, it's a lot of negotiation that you have to do. Like, are we going to roll back, you know, can we not fix it? Um, and that's usually part of like negotiating, I guess, right? Like, hey, what what would be the best best decision given a situation? So I might yeah. add that quote. Depends on the scale of the problem uh, for me. Like if we're talking about an app that has, uh, I don't know, 100,000 unique active users a month, if we're talking about rolling back uh, an update, whatever is broken had better be fucking significant. You know, if it's like a mild graphical glitch or a bug that affects 1% of users, maybe you don't roll back unless it's catastrophic and it's really, really bad for PR or whatever, then you, you know, you fix it. But if it's something that's like a catastrophic failure affecting 70% of your 100,000 users over a month, roll it back. Yeah, no, I but think. first of all, you shouldn't get to the situation when you are 70% into your progressive deployment and only yeah. then you figure out that you have a problem. The other aspect is that if your build is repeatable and fast and your software is written, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to deploy and it's fast to get up, then um, what is the difference in time spent between a rollback or a fixing commit? Yeah, it, it, then it depends on the complexity of the problem. Yeah, of course, how, how long it yeah. will take you to fix it. Yeah, yeah. That's, the, that's the real question.
Now, those are always like, those are always very, like, unless you're in this situation, like every, like every application is different, like what Kat was bringing up, right? Like, hey, every, it's not one size fits all, you know, the level of effort or level of urgency is different than, you know, hey, what's for lunch here at the building versus, yeah. uh, I can't, you know, I can't cash this check, <laughs> you know, on my <laughs> phone, right? Yeah, so like every, everything is a little bit different. Um, usually a lot of times, yeah, because the systems we deal in are so complicated. There's complicated infrastructure and there's, there's complicated infrastructure, there's complicated application infrastructure, and the applications are complicated. A lot of times, even, or sometimes, even if we're doing safety things, like doing a canary release, uh, you know, we're, we're segregating some of the traffic, trying it, trying more and more and more. There's always times for incidents, right? There's things that happen at scale you just can't predict. Like there might be some sort of database failure that you have so much load you you didn't foresee it um you know you your clusters aren't scaling fast enough you you weren't there was like a runaway success or a thundering herd this is a very sre type topics right like like yeah. how do you how do you rectify for that and how do you remedy that and so it, it, there's always a lot to go wrong but for, for the bulk share of getting to the yes if you passed all these tests right like if you pass the load test and so just if you did everything that would make sense you, you could go in with a lot of confidence that you know we we know what we're doing at this point, <clears throat> at this point. Yeah. Uh, harness site still calls it continuous uh, delivery, not continuous deployment. Do you personally still want a manual baby gate for safety for the actual deployment? Or are you I comfortable automating the deployment too? I, I, it's, it depends on the organization. I'm comfortable doing 100% automation. Uh, like we're, like from from my definition of like if there's like more than one CD like continuous deployment versus continuous delivery, c continuous deployment is more of the mechanism, right? Like, hey, if there was no if there was no checks, like, am I able to? It's very happy path. Like, is it technically feasible for me to go from commit to deployment without anything touching it? Right? No, like very little testing. It, it, do we have all? Of, do we have some sort of way just to go build deploy, build deploy, build deploy? Uh, and that's that's kind of continuous deployment. You physically have the access to do that, and that that's that takes you know skill set to do that, right? Like you have to be using a stack that is conducive to doing that and continuous continuous deployment. Where delivery portion comes in is a lot of the orchestration of confidence steps, right? Okay, are you running a soak test? Are you getting an approval? Uh, if it if it was up to me, I, I would automate. I, I would automate pretty much all of it, right? Like there's no need for a human intervention. Um, there's, we definitely support customers that are under different risk frameworks, right? So we have federal customers, we have insurance customers, we have you know, people who are credit card vendors and PCI, right? Like, and so th they have a little bit different risk framework that they do have a human element um, of expertise sure. that's looking at it. It's, it's always a very difficult thing. Like there's, it's, it's always one or the other, right? It's either you automate everything with, with very little resistance, which is more continuous deployment, or you're a totally manual process. Like what the 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 ironic saying is, it's easy to automate everything except the, the button push. Right. So <laughs> yeah. folks want to automate all the way up to a point, push the button, and then let it keep going. Doing that is actually more difficult than either side. Right. It's it's more difficult than 100% automation. It's more difficult than like in terms of level of effort to build something like that versus complete manual. And that's something that the harness platform does really well. You can add as many manual gates. I know it's like a shameless plug. <laughs> you have as many, many manual or gates as you want, and it makes it very easy to make it as manual or automated or anything in between um, as you want.
I think. Yeah, the no, but, but the, the problem the problem with the manual gate is not obviously how hard it is to implement it or how easy it is to press the button, but what is the level the, the expectation of level of knowledge that you require from the um, from the, the the approver? Because what we say, and that's my problem with this approach, is that okay, we build a very elaborated pipeline. We baked tons of knowledge into those quality checks, and uh, we came with uh, we came through the quality gates to this point where now a single person with, as we spoke, limited capacity for 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 knowledge, is now supposed <laughs> to make a decision which is equivalent to all the elaborated tests done by tons of different tools and doing it fast without uh, having any knowledge. For me, those types of last-minute approvals are just, you know, having someone to blame if something uh, uh, goes wrong. It doesn't really add anything, and the person that is supposed to make this decision is actually incapable, by definition, to make a knowledgeable uh, uh, decision there. I guess I guess difficult. Yeah, if you like, kind of take a look at like, I'll, I'll talk about what it looked like at, at at the bank where we had the most. Let's say approval. Like it was the only time I had to go through approvals to deploy <clears> something. Right. Um, it, it's usually like some VP that's higher than me would would look at the tickets. Right. Okay. Let's look at mainly it was like service now. Right. So we had to put requests into service now. And he or she was kind of like, look at all our findings. So we would attach all the findings. Say, Here, here's the output of all the tests that we ran. Here's the infrastructure that we have it on. Here's like all the places. Like we have the specific format that's like copy, paste, copy, paste, copy, paste, you know, into this like Word document that we would attach uh, into the service now ticket. So you know, the approver will make the final approval. And then we use that different team saying, okay, we got approved. Go ahead and push it in. So, but, uh, but, but that defeats the purpose. If you already have all the checks, and you have all the results, then you have an algorithm of how to act based on those checks and results. And if you say, all right, I have all the critical tests passed and some percentage of non-critical tests didn't pass, and you expect this VP to approve this situation, but on the other side, you expect them to uh, reject the situation when any of the critical tests are passed, then you just code this algorithm. And on the other side, if this algorithm is not defined, then you have a Russian roulette. You just let someone make decisions based on insufficient information, and the only purpose for that is to have someone to blame when something doesn't work. I really, the more I think about it, the more I'm convinced that the whole idea of having a manual gate in the end actually harms more than it helps. I think what, it, it depends on the institution. Like, <clears throat> the, I'll give you like kind of some rationale behind like what, why there's mm -hmm. sort of text and what, what there's ways to automate around it, you know, in 2020 uh, would be uh, what, what the approval, uh, I'll make a very car specific example. Baruch, congratulations. You're looking for a new Porsche Cayenne. Congrats, the big one. Get the good one, Baruch. Um, <laughs> so like Porsche is automated, I'm, I'm a big Porsche fan here. So like as, as automated as our factories are, there's still like somebody at the end of the assembly line, like wiping a glove, you know, he or she knows exactly what millimeter every part of this Porsche should be. And if you watch her, like how it's made videos that you always like, 
why is this person rubbing rubbing a car? Like, stop it. It's mine. It's not your Disney player. Um, that, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's just that. The, the approval, the approver, uh, in a best case, has domain knowledge of the application, right? So he or she knows what deviation is. So if I was new to the team, let's say, let's say I was a new cat, you're my approver. Uh, and I'm new to the team, but you've been on the team for two years. Like, Cat okay. would have domain knowledge of what normalcy looks like. And if, especially if I was a new engineer on the team, I have no idea what the baseline is. Like, I, I really don't know what was acceptable and what's not. We pass all the tests, but you know, was there something when you're rubbing, you know, you know, you're doing that type of, like, last-minute quality check? Was there something that I missed with, with the limited knowledge I have about the application? Usually, cat will be like, "Okay, you, everything looks like it lined up." Now, wh- we, where, we are not you... arguing if more knowledgeable person is better to take those decisions than less knowledgeable person. We are arguing mm-hmm. about if it's even possible to a person have more knowledge and apply better algorithm that all the tools that you have in your pipeline building toward this knowledge. Because if the algorithm is simple enough. It should be qualified, and if it's not, then it was just guessing at the stars, and you just look at a bunch of tests, and you decide whether it looks better for you or worse. This is not how you define quality and and go or no go to production. I understand how hard it is to give up control. I just don't think that in this point of time, for automated deployment and delivery, people can apply better judgment than machines. Or I think I was going over that that port. It's actually what you're exactly what you're saying. Um, <clears throat> a lot of times, let's talk about what a modern team looks like. We're all let's say again, we're on a team. Most likely, people will change teams like every six months to a year. So, like a lot of that institutional knowledge is not there. So, we're already faulted by that. Like the number of people who know the application very uh, intimately is reducing the pool, and so we have to do things off of historic baselines. So, this is where you're going to look at like monitoring data. You're looking at trending data, and that's actually one last plug for Harness. Like we, a lot of times, let's say us three run a DevOps team, or us three were like on some sort of team that's like, hey, we're a platform engineering team. We're no longer responsible for one app, but we're responsible for hundreds of apps. Like, there's no way we have context in every app. Like, it's impossible because we're not on those teams. Um, with the Harness platform, uh, we we actually look for deviation, right? So going back to that automation portion of it, we know what's normal, we know what's not. Especially if we roll in and out of projects, like it's it's kind of doing that for you. So um, if leveraging a platform like Harness or leveraging the Harness platform, uh, we're we're baselining for you and also looking at deviations occurred roll back like the black kid killer ah you're screwing up get out of here get a stop it you know so that, that that's the hardest part right like that it, it, having a knowledgeable human is always hard to find because we all change jobs every reason to leave it to machines which don't switch teams so yeah they're there right yeah. so yeah so i i i mean i welcome I, our lords right personally right i don't i don't want to have to do menial tasks anymore as an engineer i don't want to have to make stupid decisions like that if my automation has already determined that to the best of its knowledge it's gonna run it's gonna build and it's gonna run and the users are not gonna crash it then yeah i mean take take a security decision okay you don't need to approve a security decision you have a report from x-ray and it has certain amount of critical same uh, some amount of major minor trivial whatever 
So you, as a subject matter expert, can reason and say, okay, I'm fine with miners, which are not in my core application, but in my dependencies, I don't know, I'm not a subject matter. But if you can express that as a sentence, that's a codable algorithm. There is nothing there that the machine cannot do for you in this scenario. And the problem is the person, this VP, who is in charge of pressing the button, they don't have this algorithm in hand because they are not security experts. So I don't, I, I don't know how can you justify it uh, except of just being comfortable of, you know, how do you did this motion with your hand to, to rub your hair <laughs> over the car? I, yeah. I don't know how it, how it helps, but if you make it feel better, maybe it's not enough of a reason. If you don't lose money on it and your competition are not doing it completely automatically and thanks to that, that rolling features faster and being more protected with security and saving more money, maybe it's fine, but I don't see any other reason for that. Tamburuk, you're a bully. I am. <laughs> I am. I'm automating people out. Yes. <laughs> Bye, humans. <laughs> Bye, humans. Well, with this extremely optimistic note. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I think it, it's where there's a lot more automation, you know, just reflecting like over like the last 10 years. Like absolutely like the, the, the amount of like human pushes are a lot reduced, right? Like, you know, it, it's basically certain organizations just for the framework, they need it, but those are becoming less and less, right? More, more even the most conservative organizations are are looking to automate more pieces of that they have before. So it's definitely a walk, crawl, run. Um, but yeah, that's exactly right. Like if you're not, your competition's going to do it if you're not doing it. So that's, that's business these days. Yep. Yep. So with that extremely optimistic note, I, I really want to thank our special guest today. Uh, Ravi, thank you very much. It was a lot of fun and I think we learned a lot. It was a fun discussion and we are definitely looking forward your session at Swamp Up this year and to see you at Swamp Up in Flesh and Blood uh, next <coughs> year. So thank you very much. Uh, thank you, uh, Kat. And um, I'm Baruch with that. Thank you very much. And bye-bye.